0: Let's go!
1: Let's go! Oh, no. no want sorry, sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited, and I feel relaxed, and I'm ready to
0: party! Don't say so sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have
1: nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents.
0: Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast that is the celebration of queerness and sleepiness and feminism and all sorts of fun things. Um, I am your current host, Lauren Humphries-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello you are sleepy i am a symphony of terror
1: i am very sleepy um and i am so terrifying
0: and i am very terrible so
1: (laughs) you are many things
0: lauren i am it's true (laughs) and and you are not only sleepy obviously how are you otherwise (laughs) other than being sleepy how are you
1: you know i'm good actually i you know it was a really good week surprisingly i had some good things happen at work at my regular job i had some good things happen at my not work so it's uh it's just kind of this weird time where everything's going really well and i'm waiting for something to happen and trying not to make something terrible happen just by expecting it you know that whole unfulfilled prophecy thing but or not unfulfilled
0: self-fulfilling
1: see i'm tired yeah (laughs) <laughs> anyway how are you well
0: i'm good i am good we are recording at our usual time this time around so i am slightly less manic uh it being the morning and everything and i've not had any wine so
1: <laughs> well i'm i'm glad that you haven't because i have to be a little concerned if you're already yeah. liquored up but you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, if I start drinking wine at like, you know, 11 o'clock on a Saturday, that's probably not a good thing that that would worry me personally. <laughs> I, I, I do drink occasionally, but I am not a, a big drinker in that sense. <laughs> Except it's- for brunch. I mean, brunch brunch mimosas are their own thing. So
1: for sure, of course, but you don't usually do brunch mimosas by yourself
0: no no it's more of a go, social thing it's a social thing definitely <laughs> what do you mean you don't do brunch mimosas by yourself what are you talking about <laughs> i actually could do a mimosa right now um <laughs> but i'm not going to uh so today we have a lot of uh kind of interesting things to talk about we want to keep on talking about um queer films and particularly queer representation in classical hollywood and what that means what that looks like and kind of some of the things that, that we wanna um, deal with when it comes to, to to specifically to classical Hollywood films. First, uh, we wanted to mention the fact that Ezra Miller has vanished. Um, Ezra Miller, who's the, the star of The Flash and has been in a lot of hot water um, over various things. Right now, uh, they're facing possible like court, Court case, possible um, jail time even, uh, because the parents of an 18 year old from North Dakota have obtained a protective order against uh, Ezra Miller, adding another scandal. Um, and the the accusation is that Miller has been physically and emotionally abusing and grooming a, um, a teen named Dakota Iron Eyes and Miller can't be found, basically uh and the the hearing is currently set for july 12th but not like they they can't they can't find the actor so this this whole thing is very weird and i think we we were talking about before the podcast started it's very weird that warner brothers is still kind of standing by miller who you know was accused of assault in hawaii is now being accused of grooming
1: was arrested for assault twice in Hawaii. yeah and contest
0: and is now being accused of grooming and like all of this stuff and you know as, as we pointed out miller has done exactly two films as the flash and they are the same film they're the justice league and Zack Snyder's justice league so why warner brothers is still kind of like hasn't basically released them from their contract
1: yeah they also they, i mean they were in a couple of warner brothers movies because they were also in the fantastic beasts movies too Um, oh i I
0: completely forgot about that
1: yeah most people did um (laughs) understandably so but uh
0: those movies are just full of terrible people jesus christ uh
1: they're they're working on that i mean johnny (laughs) depp is out replaced by mass mickelson and then ezra miller's character may not exist in the next movie It's it was left a little bit unclear but it'd be very easy for mm-hmm. Credence to not be back so hopefully this will be a I don't know a turning tide I think I think people were asking for uh, a recasting of The Flash because that movie comes out next June and I think that's what Warner Brothers was like no Uh this we're gonna stick by this film it's gonna still release as planned what happens with the flash as a character or with miller as an actor contracted with warner brothers after that remains to be seen but it it does seem weird that they're not even acknowledging that there are some problems here they're just like nope the movie's still coming out so that's that's what i find strange
0: like you said some pretty uh, some pretty obvious problems like like yeah. the being arrested for assault being accused of grooming this this is like these are serious this is serious this is very serious allegations these aren't rumors or anything like that um you know and now and now they've, they've disappeared and nobody knows where they are so yes the teens parents and law enforcement are having a hard time locating miller to serve the actor with the order um and this is according to the los angeles times so let we'll just have to wait and see what happens it's this this is not one that i have you know as a as a viewer i don't have tons of investment in because i'm not that interested in the flash or in fantastic beast but you you do kind of want to go like at, at this time why would you continue to stick by an actor that obviously has a great deal of problems and is is certainly a liability
1: yeah yeah i don't i don't get it
0: so that is what is going on in the world of terrible people uh moving on to slightly less terrible people i guess although this this one um this issue i think is is a really complicated one and it's one that i sort of wanted to talk about because we talked a lot um last week about you know our favorite lgbtq films a lot of them are obviously more contemporary uh, partially because, at least under the, the code in Hollywood, you could not produce mainstream films with explicitly queer, gay, et cetera, characters. Uh, which is not to say that there was not queer representation in classical Hollywood films, but a lot of it was very subsumed. It was implied. Um, it was the sort of thing that, you know, it even even to a point where they would hint at it or almost say the word gay or lesbian but never quite get there um and and so i wanted to talk about queer representation in classical hollywood for a little bit and what that means and one of the things one places i wanted to start was this understanding of sort of contemporary understanding of certain actors as being gay or bisexual and some of the most obvious people uh, would be people like Rock Hudson or Montgomery Clift, who we know were gay. And the the other issue is that very often they were known to be gay within the Hollywood communities. So they were not out, but they were out. People were aware of their sexualities. And so you get these sort of, uh, these films that hint at that, that kind of use that flu- almost fluid persona of these actors to kind of, to to show that their characters might be gay, might be bisexual, etc, without ever explicitly stating it. And, you know, the the best example is Rock Hudson, who is this kind of man's man. And that's the way that he's represented pretty much across the board. Right. Um, and to to the point that when it, when he actually came out as gay um, much, much later in his career, A lot of people just didn't believe it because he was so masculine. He's, you know, this big, good looking, broad shouldered, you know, very much this this type of being um, the kind of representative of American masculinity. But it's interesting, then, in in contemporary discussion of a lot of his films, there is this kind of need almost to to overlay queer readings onto his characters or onto the films that he made in general, especially the Doris Day films. Uh, And I can't remember which film it is exactly, but there is actually one film with Doris Day where he literally pretends to be a gay man. Um, His character is, you know, the kind of typical Rock Hudson ladies man, and he's trying to get close to Doris Day, and he pretends to, and again, they never quite say what he's doing, but it's all very stereotypical. So he performs as this stereotypical gay man. Um, And you've got this kind of humorous layer to that, because it is Rock Hudson, who we know now is a closeted gay man, um, but at the time is also viewed as this sort of perfection of american masculinity um playing a character who is straight pretending to be gay and doing so stereotypically so there's this fascinating level of interpretation um that that you do have to you know understand the basis which is that hudson himself is gay so it's an interesting issue where you've got these actors who are playing straight characters for all intents and purposes but are still adding in these hints of queerness Um, so i don't know if you had thoughts on that carrot if you had anything that you wanted to to mention with that it's a difficult thing to kind of navigate because you're having to overlay the the actors personal lives and how much people actually knew about their personal lives at the time
1: yeah well i know that um uh, you're specifically talking about classical hollywood but the problem is that this kind of thing still happens now i mean uh, oh yeah definitely i mean rebel wilson just came out this week and she's late 30s and everyone you know most people have been very you know celebrating with her and stuff but um but still it took a long time for her to be comfortable sharing that and then there you know there's every time uh an actor who people assume is straight is cast as an lgbtq character people get really upset about that and make a lot of assumptions and it's like, we don't know who is still not out, you know, in in the world. There are a lot of reasons why people uh, choose to to not come out, to choose to not reveal that part of themselves. And so there's still a lot of assumptions being made. But I look at at people like Rock Hudson and the fact that if he had come out earlier on in his career it would have destroyed his career and so it's a much different world now um obviously and there's a lot more acceptance that didn't exist at the time and it's like yeah sure everyone loved rock hudson he got to be this big movie star but if he had lived his true self publicly he wouldn't have had that experience he wouldn't have had that career and he never Mm -hmm. would have been viewed as this like pinnacle of masculinity as you say
0: well he's he's a really interesting figure because very often um you know it, it is this kind of odd dichotomy because in a lot of ways he he's he's almost at least in certain films he's almost the successor to someone like john wayne mm-hmm. um again at least in terms of his physical body but if you look at films like giant where he is like this this typified Amer- pin, like you say pinnacle of american masculinity and the fact that you have a queer man playing these characters and being forced to be closeted based on, because of the nature of, um, of Hollywood at the time, because of the nature of society at the time, um, it produces this, it's, it almost, there are times where it's almost like a joke where you're like, there, there is this subversion going on. Um, at least in some of Hudson's performances. And this is one of the ways to read his characterization because, because of the awareness of his queerness. Um, and so there, there is an inherent joke, I guess, in him playing these you know, ladies men that all, all of the women want, all of the men want to be, et cetera. And knowing underneath all of that, that he doesn't desire women. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and, and there, there is also this element, I think of, um, uh, the, you know, that, that stereotype of the men that are most kind of voracious in their sexual appetites going after women are actually the ones that are cause of it. Um, and, and he, he kind of, He's an interesting figure in in Hollywood because of what we know about him now, what was known about him then, and what films actually dealt with. You know, if you look at the Douglas Cirque films. He never, he never plays a queer character. He never plays a gay character, right? He's not even really typed as being queer or gay. Um, But Because of kind of the trappings of camp that are surrounding him and some of the jokes that are being made, there's a fantastic little aside in um, All That Heaven Allows, where at one point Jane Wyman, like they're having a conversation and Jane Wyman um, asks him, well, so you want me to be a man? And he laughs, and he's like, "Oh no, no, I don't mean that." And and they're talking about like the difference between men and women, and he's like really prizing kind of the the maleness of um, of logic and of intelligence and you know all of this stuff. And so she makes this joke about you know him wanting her to be a man, and you do kind of wonder who like if, if this was understood. This is a pretty blatant joke, and of course we laugh at it now because we know that rock hudson is gay um but would this have been this is where you get into audience reception right would the audience of the time period have understood it that way
1: and i think the pretty obvious answer is no they wouldn't have yeah they may have they may have laughed about the joke but they wouldn't have laughed about the they wouldn't have understood the subtext of of that mm-hmm. so
0: uh, the, this kind of comes up a, a great deal in terms of more obvious queer representation. And the documentary, The Celluloid Closet actually deals with this kind of more in-depth um, of the the characters that are quite obviously typed as queer. So the most obvious example is Paul Lint, um, who is by all readings in any generation, you're like, this is not a straight man. <laughs> Um, and he wasn't he wasn't straight but even in his on-screen persona he's always playing the kind of battered put-upon husband right so he's always ostensibly straight ostensibly heterosexual Um, but it is next to impossible to read him as heterosexual at the same time so again you get this really kind of interesting dichotomy between what the film requires of him. Like he's required to be, he has to be straight because that's what you, you're not allowed to show anything else. But he is so obviously queer. And at least in the 1950s and 60s, I think that that's a reading that more and more people would have understood at some level. Um, although that being said, this was also a generation that did not completely get that Liberace was gay. <laughs> so it's odd. A very good if, point. it's odd but it's it's an odd thing it's the it's this kind of acceptance of queerness right as long as it's never explicitly queer yeah
1: well i i I think that comes back to something that i heard a lot when i was younger thankfully i don't hear it as much anymore but i don't care if they're gay as long as they don't do that in front of me like do what exactly i was never sure but (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's this it's this like as long as you are not overt in yeah. your homosexuality at some level yeah as long as you pretend that you're straight mm-hmm. right yeah and and we still hear that we still hear this this like i don't have a problem with gay people but do they have to shove their lifestyle in your face things like that right um and that's often been the the kind of some of the issues that, sur- that surround pride right is is like oh well, you're running around with a rainbow flag or you know kissing men in public things like that um yeah but it, it is still this there it's this dichotomous relationship between being ostensibly straight but obviously not being straight yeah um i i would like to to go on to the queer coded villain and i realized as i was making this list that a lot uh,
1: of them it are took you until you got to the end of the list to realize what they had in common huh
0: <laughs> i was like that's a lot of hitchcock films uh-huh.
1: um, oh i noticed that straight out the gate
0: <laughs> i was like oh yeah rope north by northwest <laughs> rebecca strangers on a train psycho you can maybe add in there although psycho's a little psycho is a little more complicated i think because of
1: a lot more complicated yeah
0: because of what we we learn about norman and and about his relationship with his mother but i uh, although again you know there's a stereotype at work there too Mm -hmm. um so karen i've been talking a lot so why don't you discuss a little bit about the queer are there other films that you would add to this list
1: um probably but i like right now i can't think of any i think Mm -hmm. this is a pretty good starting point um i actually i know you you wanted to talk about villains specifically but i actually wanted to jump back to what we started to talk about last week um really quickly with casablanca Mm -hmm. because so that comment i hadn't named the commenter because i wasn't sure if he wanted us to but he does that came from connor and he followed up and gave us some more information yeah about um about why casablanca is a quintessentially bisexual film and so here are some of some of the uh pieces of evidence he offers so uh let's see the biggest supporting piece is the dialogue with captain renault telling someone if i were a woman i would be in love with rick so much of their banter feels super flirty especially in the final shot renault insists on running away with rick when Rick was down for it, which Rick was down for, yeah, he he was. Um, it's hard to get more romantic than that. You know what, Connor, you do have a point. Um, and then let's see, Renal is the easy one to nail down for having serious feelings for Rick. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't invalidate sexual attraction he experiences or expresses for various women, which is the where the bisexuality comes in. And then he says Rick also he'll argue is by and this gets into conspiracy theory territory he says so his theory is that rick had a fling with the character that peter Laurie plays because there is this animosity between the two that seems to come from something deeper than just this like um because like the, the that character is is this like crook he he deals and stuff like in scams and ref like scamming the refugees and stuff so anyway but he thinks connor thinks that um the real reason for the animosity between them is not just about the scams that that uh peter laurie's committing pulling off but that there's something else between them that is a little deeper and i was like oh okay that's interesting that's cool so
0: well, to, to to deal with the Renault character, I think that that's, that's actually a very good, good issue that, is. that, that I, I would like to talk about in terms of the queer coding of villains because he is a very nebulous character. Yes. For most of the film, you don't know basically what side he's going to come down on, which in itself is, you know, kind of a, a um, you know, we were talking last week about the villainous bisexual, right? So the person that you don't quite know about Um, and, and so, so definitely he's one of those characters that goes both ways as it were. So he is both kind of trying to appease the Nazis, but also is very quietly subverting it. And, and at the end of the day, is very much out for himself. And finally, you know, does come out on the side of good, um, and, and endangers himself in a lot of ways in, in rebelling against Strasser and, um rebelling against the nazis but there
1: is does he for... come out on the side of good or does he come out on the side of rick
0: he i i mean it depends upon how you read it i do think that they're his disgust with the behavior of the nazis i do think is is readable beyond just his yes. his attachment yes. to rick Yeah. um because you see that in other scenes right of him kind of playing along but not really wanting to be there sort of thing mm-hmm. um but but yeah, ultimately, he is this, this questionable character, and you don't know what he's ultimately going to choose, and that in itself has, has a queerness to it. is certainly within the context of that of, the, of you know, 1940s society. Um, I do think that there is, there's a, an inherent queerness to Claude Rains generally. And this comes up again and again in a lot of the films that he made. And some of it, some of it is because of this, you know, where exactly is he from? Kind of question. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, he he was actually he was originally Cockney. The the accent actually comes from him uh, evening out his his very strong Cockney accent. Oh wow. Um, yeah, him and Cary Grant, both of them. Like if you actually listen to the two of them side by side, they sound a lot alike. Um, and, and yeah, so, so Rains basically had to flatten out his, his Cockney accent. And what comes out is that not quite clear, kind of British, maybe American, maybe even French sort of, uh, sort of voice. And that's, uh, but that's where it actually comes from. But, but Raines very often played those kinds of characters where you're not quite certain about him. Mm-hmm. um you're not quite certain if he's going to be good or bad or a mixture of the two and there is a queerness to that because a lot of a lot of queer-coded villains basically um you've you've they're meant to be viewed with distrust uh and and queer people are, are viewed with distrust because you know, it, it's a, a, at the most stereotypical and most bigoted level. Well, they might be gay, you know, they might hit on me, something like that. Um, Reigns himself was not, was not gay. He was, he was as as far as I am aware, he was a heterosexual man. Conrad Viet, meanwhile, who plays Strasser in Casablanca uh, was bisexual himself and um, and again, there, there is this tendency in all of the, in all queer coded villains to use queerness as kind of an indication of perversity. Uh, and, and that's kind of one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit, that queerness and perversity and sadism, sadism and masochism in particular, um, all seem to be allied when it comes to queer coding villains. So you look at someone like Mrs. Danvers, uh in rebecca you look at you look at um brandon and and now i'm blanking on his name in rope uh brandon and philip you look at the bruno in um strangers on a train there's there's a perversity to these characters and a a sadism to them that is allied with their representations being queer yeah so any further thoughts on that
1: I feel like I am not helpful to this episode whatsoever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I just don't want to keep on talking over you. I know. I know. I don't. Well, so, so, like, look at something like Rope. How Mm -hmm. when you first saw Rope, what what was your interpretation of that? Was it? Did you view that immediately as being, oh, these guys are gay? Uh,
1: no, because I saw it when I was younger, and I just didn't think about, I didn't think about characters being gay or straight. Um, I was probably in high school at the time, and. it was i keep saying this but it was a different world back then i just i just didn't ever really think about it but as i've gotten older and i've revisited that movie many times yeah i think it's it feels very much like they are two gay characters
0: and i mean i i think it's it's weird how we understand these things right Mm -hmm. so when when you're talking about queer coding villains on the one hand this is representation (laughs) at a time when representation was not allowed right right um on the other hand the way that you're getting away with it is by making them bad right right they're murderers they're sadists they're the villains they're the nazis Mm -hmm. um and and that is inherently allied in some way to queerness although it is never explicitly stated
1: right yeah and that's that's where it's one of those things where it's like it does that make it good or bad it's obviously bad representation to only have these characters be villains and to continue to perpetuate these not even stereotypes it's not even that it's it's just this like it's uh, vilifying an entire group of people based on their identity yeah and but I think that what it does accomplish by by trying to go you know around the censors and things i think what it does accomplish is it gives us something here now 40 50 60 years later to break down and to really start to um to analyze the ways that that people in hollywood had to uh or chose to um like i said get around you know censorship and and try to sneak in representation in any way that they could i don't think that necessarily um all of these characters all of these films were people who wanted uh, us to look at gay people as bad it's just Mm -hmm. you know ways to ways to sneak in um characters i guess so to speak i don't know maybe people understood it better than i realized at the time i'm not really sure
0: well yeah i mean you there there's always when it comes to audience perception there's always a question of like how much would people have have recognized and obviously people knew about the existence of homosexuals right yeah um and and gayness and queerness and everything i i think that these films in particular when you're talking about the the queer coded villain i think these films in particular rely on this understanding of of perverse sexuality what would be considered to be perverse sexuality mm-hmm. um, and and gayness definitely falls into that particularly when it comes to men um, it's it's this reliance on the dangerous gay man basically at yeah. the same time when you look at people like when you look at characters like like philip and brandon both of whom are played by the way by gay men um, you you do have this interesting layer that this is almost a challenge to heterosexuality. It's a challenge to the mainstream. And you know, since since I I managed to list a lot of Hitchcock films, um, Hitchcock's villains generally are very often more likable than his heroes, and are mm-hmm. certainly more interesting than his heroes. And one of the the complications I think that you get when you when you talk about these more queer typed characters like Bruno and Strangers on a Train or Philip and Brandon um you're you're looking at characters who do challenge the very staid heteronormative world and are charming and likable and are the people that you want to actually watch so again you've got that that kind of tension developing between um what what we're supposed to consider moral and the, the characters that we're actually interested in the characters that we actually like yeah um, and, you, and you get that a little bit in things like even All About Eve. So there's been an argument that the George Sanders character in All About Eve, Addison DeWitt, is typed as queer. Um, you know, again, even though he, he obviously has sexual relationships with women. But it's it's again that that nebulous kind of place where you're like, what is he sort of thing? Um, but again, he's one of the most memorable characters in the entire film
1: oh yeah absolutely well and when you have when you have characters that that may be gay but have relationships that are heterosexual then then it starts to get into okay well are they bisexual or are those heterosexual relationships just for show just because they can't be out
0: yeah and 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 there's also i do think that we have to to take into account the historical context as well Mm -hmm. Um, because what we interpret now as gay or queer is not necessarily what would have been considered gay or queer in the 1950s or in the 1920s. Um, You know, so there there are again, there's different understandings of what is masculine and what is feminine, depending upon the generation. And so, you know, men be so so men being overly concerned with the way that they dress and their appearance. Um, we very often, at least, or at least for a while, and I think that this has changed as well. That we very often are, are like, oh well, that's a little bit, that's that's at least queer, if not necessarily gay. Um, that was not always true. <laughs>
1: no.
0: Um, and and so when you look at someone like Addison Dewitt, who is very caustic, who is very um, English. <laughs> you know he's played by george sanders he's got that sort of lilting laconic voice right and again george sanders himself was not a gay man um and and so how much of that is then us overlaying our own understanding of queerness on a character who's not necessarily typed as queer
1: right which is something that we do a lot um you know people do that all the time even going back just into history and going into film and everything just because we're searching for representation anywhere that we can find it
0: yeah because in any case you can't be explicit about it right um no matter what like it's you cannot ever actually say the words
1: (laughs) right yeah
0: um yeah i i don't know it's an interesting problem and it's one of those things that when you when you talk about classical hollywood uh it's it's all layers upon layers it's all subtext you know i've seen arguments that the fred mcmurray and edward g robinson characters in um a double indemnity are typed as queer huh which i think is a stretch personally i i I,
1: I I to read more about that
0: i don't know that the argument holds water it's actually something that's discussed um not for a very long time but it's it's in the book the celluloid closet Oh, okay. uh which is kind of one of these seminal queer theory film theory texts that is kind of developing um queer theory and is beginning to look at these films in a different light which means that there are times i think where where the author actually goes a little bit too far and begins to make arguments for films being queer that the the argument is very shaky mm-hmm Um, that being said you know it's it's about whether or not you find it convincing or whether or not you know any anyone finds it convincing um because again you're talking about an era where this is just not something we talk about
1: yeah well the third thing is that that if something is not explicitly stated then we can read it any way we want as long as we're not basically rewriting the text to fit our narrative, then everything is fair game, you know? And by rewriting the text, I am referring to things like people trying to claim that Jojo Rabbit is pro-Nazi, you know? Like, that doesn't work. It doesn't hold up in, in what we actually see in that film. So I think that, that looking for queer coding in any film, as long as it's not specifically overtly said that this does not exist i think it's all fair game and i think every theory is is open and every um every reading is is subject to the interpretation of the reader and and i think that's part of what makes it fun to go back and look at classic films in contemporary light
0: yeah but it's at, at some point it has to be convincing
1: yes 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 that's like I mean. like but, and that's that's what like i'm saying like you can rewrite the film yeah
0: yeah, you can you can use any any theory that you want to and this this is one of the wonderful things about film theory you know and i don't want to get too uh kind of theoretical uh, yes, here sir. but yes, um <laughs> uh, but one of the wonderful things about film theory is that it, these are modes of interpretation these are not exactly. like hard and fast it is this or it is this right right and that's um, what makes
1: it really fun i agree yeah
0: yeah absolutely but at the same time there does it does have to be a convincing argument, right for yes. it to be acceptable so like
1: if you were to say in the philadelphia story that cary grant and um and oh my gosh my mind just went blank um jimmy stewart jimmy stewart were secretly using katherine hepburn so they could get to each other that uh, no
0: yeah that <laughs> that's that stretching work. I, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to picture a way in which that interpretation could work. You would really have to dig into it. Right. Um, yeah, it, it would be it would be a step too far, probably. Yes. And that's that's kind of what I'm saying about the double indemnity argument is that yeah. the at least the argument as presented in this book. And again, you know, I definitely encourage people to go and read it and to think about it and to you know, even consider the way that it applies to other films. The argument that's being made, I personally don't buy. I, I think that it's too shaky. Mm-hmm. um you know there there is this temptation i think particularly when we're talking about a pol- because queer theory uh just like feminist theory is also a part of a political movement right it's this yeah. this need to push back against this the patriarchal interpretations heteronormativity etc um and so i completely understand where particularly when you're talking about early forms of this theory um that you would want to kind of you know you get going you're kind of like and this is gay and this is gay and this is gay <laughs> and it's like i think you might be going a little too far on this one i don't know that you've exactly made your case here but you know m- make your case and we can talk about it. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah and that's that's what i mean too it's like yeah i think what's fun is you can read into pretty much anything as long as it is supported by what's actually on the screen
0: yeah absolutely so any final thoughts on that <laughs> um
1: i mean i i think we've talked in depth about some of these movies previously we definitely yeah, spent yeah. a good bit of time talking about rebecca and mrs danvers specifically on yes. an episode all about rebecca so i would invite people to listen to that
0: <laughs> definitely yes uh yeah i mean i i actually a lot of what we've been talking about right now has been um Uh, gay representations of queer men. Mm. Um, Queer women tend to be a little bit more, I don't, I want to say, I don't want to say obvious, not as obvious, but don't seem to get as much subtext represent subtextual representation. Ooh, that's a, Phrase. it's uh, almost
1: like it's because men make the movies and they don't want to imagine a world where women aren't into them
0: it's it's yeah i mean exactly it's it's this constant co- complaint um you know the that i know some some queer and uh, bisexual and and uh, gay women that i know have mentioned just like well we're basically ignored so, which on the one hand is nice because no one's coming after us but on the other hand it completely disavows our identity yes um, so, so, yeah, you, you don't get as many kind of lesbian markers in, um, in classical Hollywood. Although the, these do exist and very often, uh, again, it's, it's very often actually in the representation of clothing. Um, and so women dressing in suits and ties and um, uh, it's, it's almost this identification with women wearing more masculine clothing tends to imply homosexuality more which is obviously not something that you can do with queer men because a man putting on a dress is automatically going to be read as queer in a classical hollywood context yes. <laughs> no matter what um, so i don't know it's it's an interesting issue i think that one of the most prominent um representations of uh, homosexual women or at least homosexual attraction between women in classical hollywood would be like the children's hour um, which again, doesn't 100% say it. Uh, it, it's, it's comes awfully close, but it does not actually say, by the way, she's attracted to her, right, she's in love with her. Um, and, and that one is, of course, very often used as the the kill your kill your gaze kind of um, trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is actually very early not very early but it's an earlier representation of uh homosexuality in women have you seen the children's hour
1: i have not
0: it is an interesting just looking
1: film. to see where it's available
0: yeah it's Shirley MacLaine and Audrey Hepburn and they play um uh school teachers people who run a school and i'm trying to remember i think that Audrey Hepburn is engaged to to James Garner and a little girl that they teach basically begins to accuse them of something. And it's never completely revealed exactly what she's accusing them of, but she saw them together, right? And what is what essentially transpires as the film goes on is that um, the Shirley MacLaine character is actually in love with the Audrey Hepburn character. And so the accusations are do are are both false but also have merit in the sense that they're kind of revealing these actual feelings hmm. it's a really interesting film it is a problematic one
1: i will check that out it's not available to stream for free but it is available to rent so
0: definitely check it out i think it's worthwhile watching and the the two performances are, are, are fantastic especially audrey Hepburn and shirley MacLaine are great so we can move on from that um let's talk about some films that we have been watching so karen what have you been watching that you want to discuss recommend etc uh
1: well i've seen some things that i don't want to recommend
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right fine it's always good to know what films not to watch
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i also did see something that i really really liked but um okay so this week I can't go too much into it because the review embargo. Well, I guess by the time people are listening to this, the review embargo will be lifted. But I did see Lightyear this week, which um, is, they actually explain in title cards at the beginning of the movie that when little Andy got the Buzz Lightyear toy for Christmas in 1995 in the very first Toy Story movie, um, that character or that toy came from his favorite movie. And Lightyear is the movie that Andy would have would have seen in 1995 that launched the Buzz Lightyear toy. So that's what this is. So it's basically supposed to be in the vein of like a 90s sci-fi futuristic action movie. And it's interesting because I think if they had just made this movie and not said this is the movie that andy would have seen i think it is really good it's it's funny it's it's tender it's interesting because buzz lightyear gets this really um this really interesting character arc where he feels and is very responsible for something terrible that happened and um, so he has a lot of guilt associated with that. And he, he has this very interesting hero's journey. The problem with the movie is that it does some things where this there's absolutely no way in hell that this is the movie that an eight-year-old kid would have been obsessed with and would have wanted the Buzz Lightyear toy. It does not make any sense. So the tie-in to Toy Story doesn't quite work. But the movie itself is actually pretty good. So it's
0: sort of a weird, like... <laughs>
1: know if it was good or not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I heard about this like, you know, it's meta-narrational thing that they were doing. It's just like, oh, this is the movie that Andy saw that made him want the and I was like, this is a lot for me to process and I haven't even seen the movie.
1: Yeah. No, I thought the idea was really cool. When I first heard about it, I was just like, that is rad. And what a great idea. But the problem is that there are some things that are established about what this movie is in Toy Story and Toy Story 2 that are not at all what this movie is. So it's like, this feels, I actually said on Letterboxd, this feels like the prequel to the movie that Andy would have seen when he was a kid. So... (laughs)
0: this is this is the nostalgic reboot of the (laughs) original 1990s film that andy saw but then adult andy was like really fucking obsessed with and ruined his childhood
1: (laughs) exactly um (laughs) anyway so it's like i i think there are definitely some enough about it that i can recommend it but i think that it it just it needed to distance itself more from toy story and not not try to be that movie, but just kind of exist as as kind of a fun movie that gives us, as an audience, a little bit more about Buzz Lightyear. But hmm. I also think it would have worked better if it was live action. But the animation is cool, and obviously Pixar is not going to do a live action movie of one of its characters, so... Yeah. <laughs> I get that. But But I think if this were a live action sci-fi movie and maybe if the character wasn't buzz lightyear this would have i would have loved this movie i think i don't know yeah um and then i also saw jurassic world dominion which sucks
0: (laughs) (laughs) shocked i'm (laughs) shocked i saw that it got an a
1: minus cinema score and i was just like how what is wrong with general audiences but you know when when jurassic world did very well back in whatever year that was that that came out like 2015 or something. I was like, this is a problem because that movie was fine. It was, I didn't think it was terrible, but it was definitely not great. And I remember I wrote an essay at the time that I was just like, everyone is salivating over this movie. It made over a billion dollars and it's just a, fine movie it's not a great movie and this is a problem because now the studios are going to have no incentive to worry about making a movie really great if they can make a billion dollars on a movie that's just fine and we keep seeing that more and more and jurassic world dominion is such a far drop from even jurassic world and an insanely far drop from the original two films so it's it's uh yeah, it it doesn't make sense. Like, characters know things that they shouldn't know. Um, it, it's... They end up in places where it's like, why would you even go there? How does this person have access to that? That doesn't... Like, it just doesn't make sense. And it's dumb. And just... I mean, yeah. If, if you want to watch it and just have a dumb movie to watch, then fine. But if you really want something that's going to challenge your brain, then just stay home this weekend. There are a couple of other movies that you can watch at your house. That'll be a much better experience. Like Mm -hmm. one that I actually do want to recommend, which is on Netflix now and it's called hustle. Oh yes. Yeah. Adam Sandler stars as this guy who, um, who works for the Philadelphia 76ers. He travels the world recruiting basketball players to come and join them. In the nf in the nba and uh he he's kind of like his his job is is a little bit in jeopardy because of some things that have happened with the team and he stumbles across this kid who is untapped talent and he basically goes and just risks everything to give this kid a shot in the nba and the relationship between the two that builds the um the journey that Sandler's character goes on of of like kind of redeem like finding redemption for things that happened a long time ago that nobody's trying to make him pay for, but he has always punished himself for them it's just a really good movie and i honestly and i liked uncut gems and i am a big fan of you know 90s sandler comedies but i really think this might be the best work sandler has ever done
0: wow that's that's impressive
1: yeah he's really really good and the movie is good it's um it's very tender it's very emotional and it's just it's just good And it's pretty amazing the performances that they were able to pull from a lot of NBA stars, like people that I wouldn't have thought would be able to act as well as they did. Mm -hmm. It was good. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. No, I I hadn't really heard anything about that film, although I I saw it advertised on like Netflix and stuff like that, but that's, that's great. I I like Sandler generally, actually, especially since Uncut Gems. I admit that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like him too. And he's always been, he's always been a talented guy. Um, It's interesting because he, years ago, made a six-film deal with Netflix, and I think this is like the fifth one out of that deal. And people, when the first one or two came out, people were like, this is terrible. All these movies are going to be bad. And uh, this one is like, maybe it's not even part of that six-film deal. I don't know. Maybe it's just something else that he decided to do, but I think it is. And uh yeah and it's actually really really good
0: he's just like sneakily being like oh yeah you thought i was just gonna make terrible comedies right (laughs) well
1: well and it's funny because everyone jokes that he just makes movies about wherever he wants to go on vacation and because like he's had some like one took place in hawaii one took place in like um uh what where was murder mystery it was in the mediterranean i think they were just like on a ship going around um around europe and uh yeah so there's there's been a lot of jokes about that and this one he spent some time in spain and i thought he was going to spend more time in spain but he didn't but anyway yeah it's good
0: well cool. yeah that's a recommendation for hustle and light year not so much for <laughs> Jurassic World. It's yes. Jurassic World Dominion is what Dominion, it is now. yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I am shocked that that is a bad movie. <laughs> uh, well, I finally got to see Everything Everywhere All at Once, Yay! which has finally come out on VOD. Um, and I will say is entirely worth it and is absolutely, like, lives up to the hype. I, uh, I kind of expected that it would because the way that people were talking about it, I was like, this sounds like it's actually something that's good, not just something that people are, you know, really excited about because of, you know, th- who stars it or whatever. But it's, it's Michelle Yao, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Jenny Slate is in it, James Hong is in it, um, Stephanie Hsu, uh, and it's, I I almost don't want to give a synopsis of it because I don't know how you can give a synopsis of it. It's basically about a woman um, and her husband who run a laundromat with their, their daughter. There's a lot of family pension. They go to an IRS audit and the woman winds up it being revealed that she is the one who must deal with the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what else I could possibly say about the plot other than it is absolutely as crazy as it sounds. And, um, but what I really liked about it was the fact that it, it worked. Like it all made sense to me what it was trying to do. I, I got what it was trying to do, even though like, if you were like, well, tell me exactly what happens. I'd be like, I'd, well, first she goes into the janitor's closet and then she like meets her husband but it's not her husband he's a different husband from a different universe um and it just gets more and more common and she has to fight jamie lee curtis like multiple times <laughs> <laughs> um it's so much fun michelle yeah is so great in it So says jamie lee curtis and and i like the fact that this is a film that's you know ostensibly kind of this actiony movie but is really about the choices that we make in life and the 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 you know i the ending is just so heartbreaking but at the same time so beautiful and it's about basically being a mess and finding people to be a mess with. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's such a good movie. Ki Kwan plays the Kwan. husband. Yeah. And he It's so great to see him. It's been about 20 years since he did a film. People would remember him if they don't already know who he is. They would remember him as um, uh, Data in The Goonies and Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple. That's Short Round? Yeah, that was Short Round. Wow. Yeah, from (laughs) Temple of Doom. Um, Yeah. And so it's like he had done a bunch of movies throughout into the 90s and then he did a couple of things early 2000s but um yeah he kind of gave up acting for a while and i i know there's a story i don't know what the story is of why they went to him and how he ended up in this film but he is so good and i think this is gonna be kind of a a quanaissance i don't know um i think we're gonna start <laughs> seeing him <laughs> in a lot of things again because he's so good in this he really is and it's such it's such a great film like you said just how touching it is at the end how how heartbreaking but so beautiful but there's so much good stuff like good substantive filmmaking and storytelling that Mm -hmm. leads up to that ending where it feels very earned and the journey along the way is just so good too it's weird It's a weird movie. Like there are so many people that I I know would not be able to enjoy this. I could not take my mom to see this, you know. She wouldn't she wouldn't get it. She would not like it. But um but there's so many other people I think that would absolutely love it. And um I don't know. I I really enjoy the fact that it's so weird and wild and wonderful and I have this deep hope that michelle yo gets remembered at the end of the year when it comes time for awards and things because she's so phenomenal in this role
0: i mean she she anchors the film like without her and and also it's not just it's it really is her as well because her star persona plays into it yeah um and and who what we know about her and who and who she is but yeah, it's it's such a good performance, and she she does such a good job at playing, in a lot of ways, a very unsympathetic character, uh-huh. um, but also making you interested in her and making you invested, especially as time goes on, in what happens to her and what happens to her family. Yeah. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis, in, in much the same way, you know, there there is this, the film kind of kind of paints these broad strokes at first, and then you begin to see these characters more and more as as genuine people and the things that they have gone through in their lives and and knowing what leads a person to that point the choices that you make and the 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 way in which the multiverse splits off right
1: yeah and when you get to see glimpses of these other lives they could have lived when you see these other multiverses these other versions of themselves it's really it's really fascinating to to see that and it gives you such an interesting look at who this these main people are in the world that is the primary universe that we're watching and it's it's very cleverly done it's it's such unique storytelling um there are two multiverse movies out this year and only one of them is really worth your time and it's this one
0: absolutely Absolutely, I, I did really like. There's a reference to Ratatouille at one yes. point, and I really <laughs> liked what was actually done with that. <laughs> and great. and you know those those also just those little moments of, you know, the older generation saying things that the younger generation is like, "What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? No, he's like he's got a rat. He's got a raccoon. <laughs> he's got a raccoon, and a raccoon sits on his head. It's like, no, that's what." <laughs> Mm-hmm. what are you saying mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's very clever and and very funny and at the same time very kind of emotional and and I, it balances everything really well yep um we so yes just
1: done a whole episode just on that but
0: <laughs> so I strongly recommend everything everywhere all at once um which is currently out on vod you can rent it uh you can also buy it um and yeah definitely definitely recommend that one So anything else before we close things out? I have been um, covering Tribeca, although I'm gonna have a couple of reviews coming out within the next, one should go up within the next day and uh, should have a couple more later on in the week, but nothing to to necessarily talk about at the moment.
1: Yeah, same. Uh, I mean, I've already pretty much talked about everything that I've watched recently. So I'm trying to think what I have coming up this week. Not much. We're sort of in that final push toward uh emmy see like emmy season is yeah. on us and so i think the nominations open this coming week so things are going to quiet down a little bit until the nominations are announced so
0: mm-hmm. yeah well then that will close us out uh thank you all so much for listening to us and as always we very much want to thank our patrons who continue to keep us alive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: they
0: do. Um, and they include Adriana, Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for continuing to support us, guys. If you want to join their ranks, our Patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame. You will get stuff, which we are sending out soon. And you also get access to bonus episodes, get access to uh, Karen's upcoming cruising with Cruise, um, essays and and all sorts of other fun little things just get episodes early which is always fun so please go ahead and join us and plus you get to support us and let us keep on hosting our, our website and our podcast etc cetera. Um, we also have our zazzle store zazzle.com citizen dame pod and our ko-fi account is co-fi.com citizen dame you can kick us a couple of dollars without uh, making any like patreon commitment um, we also have our website that's citizendamepod.com. I will have my Tribeca reviews upcoming on on there. And I think the Karen also has a couple of things that are gonna be coming up soon. So keep an eye out for that. You can also get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Uh our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com and we are on uh Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod. Uh on Instagram is where we we do our recommendations every week. So if you check that out, you looking for something to watch during the weekend, please go over to our Instagram and check that out. And we are also on Letterboxd at Citizen Dame, where we have lists including our ongoing and very long at the moment Pride film list. Um, We've got 55 films so far on there and counting. So there definitely should be something there that you wanna watch. and you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LHBusiness. Karen, where are you?
1: I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And I just wanted to put in one quick plug on Letterboxd. One of the cool things is if you go and look at our list, you can filter it by what streaming services you have access to. So you can see what's available based on like what's streaming on Netflix or what's streaming on Criterion. So it's very cool. Cool.
0: Um, so that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Well, Mademoiselle, he's the kind of man that, well, if I were a woman and I were not around, I should be in love with Rick. But what a fool. I am talking to a beautiful woman about another man.